0: Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. If you don't know me already, I'm a two-time career switcher and pivoted from BlackRock to fashion to now career coach, where I help high achievers unhappy with their perfect on-paper job find direction in their career and pivot into a perfect-for-you career. So if this sounds like you and you're looking for some help, send me a message. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sabrina Joseph, the co-founder of Hunt Street, a secondhand luxury marketplace to find the best gems in Singapore and Indonesia. Before starting Hunt Street, Sabrina actually spent time working in hospitality and marketing and spent some time working at St. Regis and Ogilvy and Matter. Outside of fashion, she's also very involved in church and set up the Catholic Fellowship in Jakarta. So how did Sabrina decide to move into secondhand luxury fashion and decide to build Hunt Street? I'll hand over to Sabrina now to share her story. All right, awesome, amazing. Well, so happy to have you here, Sabrina. I'm so super... happy to
1: be here. Yay
0: super excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, So I wanted to start off all the way at the beginning for you, right? Um, For a lot of our guests, it's very interesting for them to see people's career journeys. So I wanted to start all the way at the beginning from when you were still in school. So I know that you went to university and studied um, Mandarin in Shanghai. I would love to hear a little bit more about why you decided to, you know, go to Shanghai and uh, study Mandarin.
1: I think it's just one of those things that I feel like I needed to learn a new language. I mean, I, I did have some Mandarin background when I was younger. Um, I was in school in Singapore for about six years um, during primary school. Um, but yeah, you know, Mandarin's always a good to have.
0: Cool. And um, did you like your time in Shanghai? Did you ever consider, you know, living in Shanghai after you graduated?
1: So I actually did. I love Shanghai, um, so much live, and I did look for a job. So I studied um, hospitality in Switzerland prior to that, and I was looking for a job in Shanghai in the hospitality industry, but I think I had a problem with my visa, my status. Mm. Um, So that that didn't work out, and I went back to Jakarta,
0: where I'm from. Mm, Okay, cool. Um, And I know that actually... uh, In the early days of your career when you were interning you did a bunch of marketing type internships um was that like an area that you you were interested in like something that you were considering as a career so my first
1: internship i did it at the saint regis hotel in singapore and at that time it was an it was um the opening team so they just opened the hotel for six months and I was one of the very first interns and they only had a job opening. So usually interns from um, hospitality universities start off as operations. So you either take uh, f operations, which is service or kitchen, or you take rooms, which is front office or housekeeping. But at that point, the only availability was in marketing communications. And so I was a marketing intern in St. Regis, and I really liked it and thought, oh, maybe marketing is something that I would like to explore as well. So my next internship was in branding and advertising in Ogilvy & Mather. Mm. And I realized that maybe marketing is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> At least agency life, because it was long hours, very, very long hours. And um, and I thought of going actually back to hospitality before I started Hunt Street.
0: Ah. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, I I actually sorry I missed that point about you going to hospitality for 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 school, um, but um, yeah, I mean, so you you thought about going, so you tried out marketing at uh, a hotel before, felt that it was really fun, decided to go into you know in house, sorry, into an agency marketing company, uh, Olivi, uh, decided that wasn't really the right uh, path for you from like. A, um you know in terms of like the long hours and and all of that um did you ever think about going back into hospitality after?
1: I did so um I think my dad had plans of opening a hotel um and I actually reconsidered that um but then I stumbled upon you know this opportunity to start Hunt Street and I thought well this is interesting it's a little bit like hospitality where you know it's kind of like a service um you do deal a lot with it's it's very client facing in the beginning before um, everything moved completely mm-hmm. online. And so I thought it was a better opportunity for me. So kind of took a leap of faith and kind of moved away from hospitality.
0: That's amazing. And how did the idea come about for Hunt Street?
1: Um, So it's me and my partner. My partner is called Janice and she's still my partner today, seven years long
0: amazing
1: um so so we just talked about it i mean she went to school in in the us she went to school in la and um you know the real real was really big i mean she was you know she knew about all these platforms and thought it was so easy when she was you know moving back and um you know needed to kind of declutter everything was made so simple it was transparent she knew exactly when her items were sold um she knew exactly how much they're priced at and so we thought well you know we don't have anything like that in in jakarta and where are at that point we started in jakarta and at that point we were saying like well you know i think this is a service that you know a lot of people might need because we don't actually cater only for women right we do men's and children as well
0: got Um, it yeah, so that's how it started. Okay, so so it was kind of just like a conversation with her and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, actually, there's something here we could try.
1: Yeah, I mean, it started off really small. It started off just an idea. Um, yeah, we didn't even put in that much money. We didn't think it was going to be anything, you know,
0: substantial. We thought, yeah, let's give it a try. So was it kind of just like a small little like side project or like a project at the beginning? You guys were like, yeah, let's just see what happens with this. Like, did you think like at that point in time were you like, okay, I'm going to full time do this and like make this my job or were you like, oh, let's just see where this goes. And, you know, I'll probably look for another uh, job somewhere else.
1: Um. So I I've never been that kind of person. I feel like I'm an all in or all out kind of person. So when I do start something, I do give it my all. Um, I, I didn't think it was going to be so big, but I did make it a full-time thing for, for me Amazing. and for her. Amazing. Yeah.
0: Um. So in the early days, how did you guys get started? Because, you know, a lot of times with these like two-sided marketplaces, uh, you have to find all the consigners to consign the clothes and also all the people to buy the clothes. Um. What did you guys start off with? So I think we started...
1: Um, we got listers from our group of friends, our family and friends. So I think that was the easiest way. And actually, in such a niche market like luxury, I think that's the best way to go about it because um, it's word of it's word of mouth, right? When when someone is happy, they tell their friends, and and it's a lot it's a lot uh, faster that way because you get quality listers, you get quality uh, sellers. We, we call them. And so I think that's how it started. I do think the supply is always more important because whoever gets supply, good supply, you know, the buyers will come. And uh, I mean, for buyers, it's just, you know, placing ads. It's just, you know, doing offline events, branding events, you know, getting your name out there, uh, using influencers. It's a lot easier than actually getting supply versus supply is difficult because these are, you know, they're not just, you know, a notebook, right? They're, you know, a $5,000 bag and you need to really have their trust for them to part with those items or, you know, even trust you or give you a 10% commission of that sale, which is still $500. And
0: so, and um, yeah, agree. Um, And so for you guys, when you guys were looking at getting friends to list, was it hard to get them to list? Were they like, oh, yes, like I've got actually like tons of stuff sitting at home. I've been meaning to clear it out. I was just gonna, you know, like donate them. Um, Here, just take them. Or was it more like you had to convince them like why they needed to, uh, why they should sell it?
1: So I think it was difficult in the beginning for two two main reasons. Um, One is because there's a certain taboo that comes along with kind of like selling your items. Um, I mean, at least in in certain societies, right? Or or certain age groups, they still feel like, you know, I I don't really need the money. Why should I be selling my items? I can just leave them in, you know, in my closet. Uh, But I think think like as times progress, I think more and more people are aware and become more sustainable. So they're definitely more open-minded today than they were seven years ago to list their unused items on a platform. Uh, the second, the second um, struggle we had with listers, I think, is um, because the concept of like taking a, a cut of like a commission is what wasn't that common in Indonesia back then. They felt like, why is it that I have to give up so much of like? The selling price but actually we don't actually take that unless the item is sold it's i mean it's a it's a common concept in the us or in europe i think just not in indonesia at that point
0: mm, so a lot of education was actually required in in this process because it was quite a new concept
1: yeah so i think that that was why we were a little bit slow in the beginning it was education to the sellers it was also education to the buyers that actually you know um Secondhand doesn't actually mean like junk, right? Yeah.
0: So on the buyer side, um, getting people to come in to buy your um products, how did you guys go about finding your first customers?
1: Um mm, again, friends and family. That's how we started. But in Indonesia, um, we're heavily um invested in like KOLs like personas to actually talk about it um in Singapore too actually when we started um you know we would we would kind of like create a community from our trusted group of friends and family who don't mind actually sharing their experience um with the public right we would say like oh here are some you know $500 shopping vouchers and if you're a girl into fashion you would take that voucher and shop and basically all we wanted was like oh like here's some voucher like why don't you give us your honest opinion or give your followers an honest opinion of of what you like about Hunt Street and you know not everything was good but um most of the time they they do have something positive to say and that's how
0: it, it just kind of got the ball
1: rolling that way
0: Got it, got it, got it. Okay, so I know we went like really in the weeds of this, but I actually want to take a step back and zoom out a little bit. I think that that was helpful. But um, I think let's I I, I want to zoom out a little bit um, to kind of go back to those early days, right? Because I know we you now have a presence in Singapore, but you guys started off in Jakarta first. So um, I think back going back into um, something a bit more chronological in terms of my questioning as well. Um, So, you know, you guys started this, you had the idea, tested it out, got a few friends to list a bunch of stuff on your platform, uh, got people to come and purchase. Uh, How did your first, how did your first uh, event go? Was it like an in-person event that you guys hosted?
1: We did. So we, I think our website, so we developed our website from scratch. It was coded from scratch by our team. Wow. <laughs> um, but in the beginning, it was not like what it is today. It was almost like a catalog where you can just, you know, add to cart. It's not really like there's no back end or no nothing. So we had a uh, sales were really slow. And so we had an offline event where we just, you know, took the items.
0: Oh so Nobody. when you first started you started on the website and um just listed everything on the website. Yeah, we did, but it was okay. It
1: it was a very like basic website. Um then we had an event we had one event and it went really well and I think uh by the second like most of our events were like charity based so we do try to work with a charity organization and we donate a percentage and then by the second event I think our website crashed um because there was like high traffic so we had to really like make another website from scratch which is the website that we have today Mm,
0: got it um so so at that point were you like like I mean like were you like okay like this has got legs this is something we can really do we can really grow this we can really expand it like what was that point for you guys
1: Um, so we had a goal, like every startup, small businesses, we had very small goals. So our goal was three transactions a day, which is like very, very small. And we said like, okay, if we have three transactions a day, like we need to build like a proper system. And that was, I think, mid 2016, which is about a year after we started Mm -hmm. consistently like three transactions a day for a whole month Mm -hmm. or more and so we said okay let's let's do this properly right let's 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 build a proper team um so before that I think
0: yeah before that how big was the team and like was it just you and your? like
1: Like, it was very very minimal like everyone was doing everything like we were doing product uploads we're like doing everything like my partner was authenticating we were pricing (laughs) everything was done like with the like maybe five six people that we had right
0: um okay so in the early days you know you guys were really hustling like doing everything by yourselves what were some of the first hires that you guys made
1: in indonesia it was different than in singapore um <clears throat> because when we started in singapore we already had a presence like the market already knew about hunt street so the for my very first hire in indonesia was actually a pr person who eventually you know Helped me do everything anyways, but his background was PR and marketing. Uh Singapore, my first hire was an ops manager. Um because
0: cur- I'm curious to know, um, what why why was PR and marketing the first uh hire that you guys made? Um I do think it's like the most important.
1: Mm. But but I mean that alongside like in in Indonesia was that and the authenticator and appraiser in Singapore, it was ops and the authenticator and appraiser. So Mm -hmm. definitely like what was constant was the authenticator and appraiser, because that is like Mm. the bread and butter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the key. But yeah, I I do think like PR and marketing is really important for a small business. I mean, for nothing to be something.
0: I think that that's so fascinating because I think a lot of people who start small businesses, they don't immediately think to hire like a PR marketing person. And so I'm actually, because I think they'd be like, oh, maybe I could just run some Facebook ads or like host an event and just tell my friends to come along. Um, and I do think that, and I wonder if that's what helped to really boost your brand up there. Do you hmm. feel like you guys investing in PR and marketing was really one way that you guys differentiated yourselves from some of the other players in the market?
1: Maybe. I mean, uh, perhaps i mean the brand definitely helps because it's the brand is all about trust right so you have to, you have to trust the brand and it's easier to trust a brand than to trust no brand right but in terms of pr i think it varies from industry to industry like in the luxury industry especially in such a niche luxury industry which is female luxury it's it's very important to have a PR person, I think.
0: So, um, what 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 were you guys quite deliberate in terms of like being in certain publications and getting your name associated with certain uh, publications or certain people? Or so we did. I
1: I remember like I I don't really like interviews. Actually, I mean this is more casual, <laughs> but even then I got I get a little nervous. But I remember doing so many interviews when we first started for so many publications um just to kind of talk about um you know the business and you know so that when people when people hear oh what is Hunt Street at least they can put a face to it Mm. oh this is the person that you know like built it yeah like or I can like chase her down if something goes wrong you know like feel free to call me if anything goes wrong (laughs) but I think that helps like add the trust and -hmm. then we did try to um kind of have like we've always been into a community so we um we never call it like a community per se until recently but we always have that strong like community support from like a group of you know very loyal on street buyers or sellers mm-hmm. and these loyal sellers and buyers are what help us grow right they they tell their friends you know like when when you're happy about something you, you will share it. Mm-hmm. And I think just to get these small groups going, I think we needed to, you know, host certain events, smaller events, and that requires PR, right?
0: That, that's mm-hmm. PR. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Um, And I think that that's, that's so interesting, right? Because I think a lot of people who want to start businesses are very afraid of putting themselves out there. And I think, as you said, there's a lot of value in showing your face, because at the end of the day, people want to know the story. I think especially, Consumers nowadays, I think they want to know the person behind the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh I think especially for secondhand luxury goods, um, I think having that trust factor is, is um even more important than just like a direct to consumer, um direct to consumer fashion brand, for example, yeah. uh where maybe they don't really need to know and trust and be able to hunt down hunt yeah. down the person <laughs> if they buy a, a fake bag or whatever it might yeah. be um and so I do think that that's really interesting that that was something that was um very innate I think it wasn't maybe a very uh deliberate kind of decision but it was some it was like an innate decision uh that you guys that you guys made um and that you know it uh paid off um yeah. you guys you know uh are definitely very well branded uh very top of mind I would say uh in terms of the secondhand luxury space in um singapore yeah. okay but i do want to take one step back before you guys decided to move into uh into singapore you said that you guys saw pretty tremendous growth over those five years in in indonesia how did you guys grow what's like the secret sauce around around yeah. growth <laughs> um is there a secret sauce
1: honestly it's a lot of trial and error um it really is a blessing, honestly, but uh, I don't know. It's like a lot of trial and error, always trying to do your best. And like like customer service, I think is like very key. It's still something that we're trying to work on because we do have like hiccups here and there. Uh, but I do think the secret sauce of like a successful platform is one, customer service, two, curation, and three, interface.
0: Mm. Actually, do so maybe elaborate a little bit on these on these three points. Cause um for you, you think that those are the three main things that led to your you guys you guys growing uh so tremendously over the past couple of years. Um so from a customer service perspective, did you bring in a lot of the elements of what you want, what you learned in hospitality into into this into this um process?
1: Um uh, no, but we do hire from the hospitality um the graduates,
0: ah, interesting. yeah, and, and so they are, they
1: are good. The hospitality graduates, we do find that they're, you know, hotels and airlines, you know, these kind of, this, this is all hospitality, right? Mm-hmm. Tourism and hospitality. Um, they're well-trained. I mean, they're, um, they're trained to, you know, accept, accept complaints. Um, they're trained to, you know, roll out that red carpet uh, for an upset client. I mean, we were thought to do that in, in, in college, right? So we do try to hire from them. We are still trying to figure it out. We do still have like hiccups here and there. Um, You know, logistic issues, complaints on like items not arriving, like on time, you know, like things like that, you know. Um, It is still a problem, but we do try our best.
0: Because you guys have two sets of customers technically, right? (laughs) The people who are buying from you guys, the people who are selling from you guys. And so do you train your staff or do you treat... um, the two sets of customers differently?
1: Yeah, so the people who, um, I, I mean, in, in, in Singapore, it's a, it's about the same. Uh, I mean, the same team handles both sellers and buyers uh, because I feel like in Singapore, it's it's more common for people to shop online. They're used to it. They know exactly. The logistics services are also a bit more reliable. They do have tracking. Um, in Indonesia, everything is done manually. It's like, um, you would have to call like the logistic services, unless it's a grab delivery, which is only within the city. But if it's like outside uh, to a different island or different city, mm-hmm. you need to kind of call. Uh, where's my item? You know, these kind of things that so they customers don't usually want to deal with this. They would just call up a hunch street, uh, uh, you know, like customer service and say, uh, where's my item? Mm, um, yeah. So we do have two separate teams in Indonesia handling mm. buyers and handling handling sellers. Mm. So they they're used to like a certain they they handle certain sets of um of issues.
0: Mm, got it. Um and kind of relating to customer service, right? Um mm. how do you find these customers? How do you build that sort of loyalty um that you mentioned earlier? Honestly, I think we've been very lucky. <laughs> but I think um
1: not to, I, I, I do think like customers nowadays are not as loyal as they used to be, like maybe like 10, 20 years ago, no, not 10 years ago, but like 20, 30 years ago, because there's so many choices now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Technically our competitors are not only other secondhand platforms, but our competitors are also retail boutiques themselves, or, you know, like um, fashion e-commerce themselves, right? Because that's basic, they either buy it here or they buy it brand new or another bag. It's, it's, it's all a matter of choice. And there's so many choices. So the only way um, I feel like we can get them to be loyal is if we offer the best curation or try to offer the best curation.
0: But it's kind of like a chicken and egg problem too, Right. So, um, how do you then offer the the best curation, which I guess brings you to the second point, which is uh, how you guys manage to grow? Another reason was really around your ability to bring in uh, a really strong curation. Um, so what what would you say? Like, how have you guys been able to be successful on on that front?
1: it's It's a lot of relationships. It's a lot of, you know, scouting for these people who Who shops? Who really shops with the with the items, right? And if they if they have really nice items, and they say like, I don't want to wait thirty days or sixty days for my items to sell, like, can you just buy them in? We'll say okay. Mm. I mean, these it starts from there.
0: Mm. So, like for certain people, (laughs) for the relationship, um, that's where you will be more open to buying directly from them rather than doing through a consignor based type of model
1: uh yes and no because we buy only certain items
0: Mm.
1: yeah like items that are more classic that even you know will sell sell. yeah Yeah. exactly they like eventually like over 30 60 90 days 120 days they will sell right Mm. but for example if like i i would have bought like i don't know a chloe padlock bag before then it might have been stuck with me for like seven years later
0: Exactly. And so I think that that's a really great example of like how there's usually a mismatch in the secondhand market in terms of the demand and uh, the demand and the supply, right? Because usually the supply mm-hmm. is stuff like the Chloe Badlock bag or some really old Balenciaga bag, you know, from really long time ago, from the 2000s that was like really trendy back then, but no longer um, what people care about. Whereas the you stuff know, they
1: actually sell still pretty well.
0: Do they? are talking about the
1: big studs, right? You're talking about work city, Balenciaga work.
0: Yeah. They
1: still really Actually, well.
0: okay. I do I do think that Singaporeans still like the Balenciaga. Yeah. Because when I was at Style Theory, I was like very shocked that people really liked renting that bag. And I was like, that's from like 2000s. It's from a while yeah. ago. It's still like pretty, I guess that's maybe more of the classic style. Okay. So yeah. I'll, I'll take that back. That's still a relic. It's really yeah. classic. <laughs> uh, but you know, like... um like the example you gave about like a Chloe Padlock bag, right? So those are stuff that was like maybe super trendy back then that you probably have like a lot of stuff people look willing to let go of today. Whereas not a lot of people are interested in buying that. Whereas probably the stuff that people are really interested in buying now is, I don't know, like the Prada, like the super sparkly like Clio bag or whatever, right? Which like probably no one's really looking to like sell that at the moment. So how do you come, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems that like secondhand marketplaces face. So how do you guys kind of, balance the two of these um I think we try
1: to to talk to our sellers like look we can sell we can definitely sell your padlock but you need to price it at like less than $200 Mm. like I know you probably bought it for like a thousand but there's no way this will sell and so if they don't accept it, we usually don't take it in because they will get disappointed. They will list with us yeah. for a year. It doesn't get sold because they're asking for $800 and then we will have to return it back to them. Um, It's disappointment. No one likes to be disappointed, right? And so usually we try to manage their expectations by saying this is what we suggest. This is the price range. But at this price, we almost guarantee that it will sell. And usually our team is correct. They do sell. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how it starts. And then once those padlocks sell, they're like, oh, this is actually not bad. I'll give them more bags. And then they might give me the, you know, product part. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the nicer ones that are more yeah. in trend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so um what was the third what was the third thing that you mentioned was quite instrumental? Inspiration, customer service. So and an interface interface yeah exactly so tell us a little bit more about that um
1: I mean we're continuously working on it we recently the last thing we did was our membership program so um that is also a work in progress but we have a dashboard now on like the tiers uh whether you're a platinum uh sorry whether you're a diamond you're a flat uh diamond platinum and gold so we have three um and hopefully we can get more loyal customers by doing that so they can sell and buy and not just sell and not just buy
0: so yeah so I do want to get to that but okay so let's let's fast forward a little bit so you guys um you know we're doing really well in Jakarta saw really strong growth year over year uh for you know five five years um did you guys at that, you guys have a physical store in Jakarta as well, right? So we,
1: do, so we, so all this time we have an online platform, but okay. we do have, um, so I think this is like a way of us as well, like educating the market, um, versus like in Singapore. I feel like it was, it's so easy for people to just shop online and just check out, you know, get delivered. If something doesn't fit, they just return it. Like it's simple. Everyone knows about that concept in Indonesia i think um some there's a certain type of demographic who still prefers to see the item first before purchasing so we just recently developed this as well going back to interface we have the add to cart which is like checking out um and we have the add to view which is you can click there can put in like you know stella mccartney pants uh louis vuitton top like an hermes birkin and then you click view and you select your appointment And our store is actually five appointment rooms, one, two, three, four appointment rooms, um, where it's, I would say maybe like like 15, 20 square meters. So it's quite big where they have a sofa, you know, they can have drinks, uh, we have like a clothing, like a clothing trolley rack mm-hmm. where, you know, you can pull out the drawers to display the accessories, the clothes, the shoes. So as soon as you, Jennifer, uh, comes to your appointment, everything you wanted to see in that app to view is already displayed in your fitting room. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can shop in there privately, it's completely closed off, um, you know, with a friend or alone or, you know, you can take videos to show it to your husband or Mm. your boyfriend if you want. So that's the kind of shopping experience that we want, kind of bringing the items offline, but not like a retail space per se. Mm. Um, So that worked really well for us. And then from there, a lot of people say, but you know, like, I want to see what else you have. Like, Mm. uh, why don't you have a a store? And we said, oh, we don't have a store because we have so many items. And also the items don't belong to us. So we don't want to be I mean, if they're your items, you list it with us. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to be liable for a scratch on your black mm-hmm. bear kid, for example, because yeah. a customer uh, have long we'll nails or something, right? It, yeah. So like we don't we didn't really want to risk that having people come in and out. So we thought, well, why don't we try it out? So we just we just started the vault. We're like literally what mm-hmm. we call the vault, which is for our diamond members only. So they need to spend um, a certain mm-hmm. amount every year to be a diamond member or sell a certain amount every year. And so they get access to the small space that we have. Um, It's not small, it's maybe about a thousand square foot, like Mm -hmm. a hundred square meters. Mm -hmm. And um, they can view like our very, like our editors picks um, and they can view the items. And if they don't like any of those items, if they if they do want to come with their friends they can request for example like i want to have a shopping soirée and i want to see all of these items and i'm going to invite my friends so they can we can turn the whole place around just for whatever they want to see
0: Mm, that's amazing and I think that uh when you mentioned like the five or four um little like rooms, Meeting rooms. appointment rooms yeah that I think is such a cool concept because it reminds me a lot of like the personal shopping experience that's usually seen as like very luxurious and like yeah. only tailored for like the really like lux- luxury shopper right which like yeah. a lot of people aren't really exposed to and I think it's really cool that you guys were able to bring that very luxurious um experience uh to your customers uh, who may not normally always get that sort of um, experience themselves, and I think it's a great smart way for you guys to keep your costs down as well, and not have to rent like a massive space to to, yeah. to showcase all the clothes and all of that, and have to deal with angry consigners who's like, "Oh my God, yeah. you you know ripped ripped uh, whatever ripped the seam of my dress, <laughs> or yes. whatever." Why does it sense. have makeup stains? Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Uh, in Singapore is
1: different Um, in Singapore we don't have two separate so in Indonesia we have the warehouse the office and this offline appointment uh, space in Singapore um, cost is really high so we just have one space which is the warehouse that we open up for public if they want to come but most of the time it's just a processing center where we do fulfillment um, where we process the items our office is there everything is there yeah
0: Okay, interesting. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know about my career coaching program that's designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing it in your dream career. So if you're feeling unfulfilled, despite having that perfect, prestigious, high-paying job, or if you're someone who's great at chasing and acing other people's dreams, but have no idea what your own dreams and goals are, well, today you're in luck. I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion and get career clarity. If that sounds like something you would want, check out today's show notes to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. Okay. So, so, you know, um, You guys have been growing really well in Jakarta. You guys then decided to move to Singapore, opened a, you know, more of like an operations kind of um, uh, office, operations slash office that now also becomes like the space for your clients to come come view. Um, And I know that you guys, you mentioned, you alluded to this um, earlier, which is, you know, you guys have built a membership and uh, built this vault. Uh, that you you guys have launched recently. So tell us a little bit about uh, this next stage that you guys are are expanding into.
1: We're always uh, expanding. We're always uh, growing. I don't know where to start. Uh, in terms of offline, definitely the vault is a big investment. Um, it took us a long time to kind of conceptualize what kind of offline presence we have. I mean, we want to have. Um, on, I mean, the appointment rooms are already doing well on its own, but if we are to have a concept like store what would it be like right so we decided to make it members only um as in you need to we don't disclose the phone number or the whatsapp or the email to anyone except for those diamond tiered members so it's very very exclusive um it's like one group or one person per appointment for that whole space so we do value privacy of the clients so that's, that's one thing that I definitely want to grow um, this year in terms of offline. In terms of online, I've always wanted to tap into the, the smaller cities. Like in Indonesia, I do want to tap into the second to third tier like cities around Indonesia and not just Jakarta. Um, in terms of Singapore, I really want to target like the professional working women because I feel like um a lot of these women were kind of like not shopping or maybe they're don't shop as much before uh during the pandemic but now that they're back to work I do feel like they do or like back to social activities I feel like they they do need to wear you know more clothes um but the ongoing thing that I'm always trying to like like focus on in terms of like branding Is like trustworthiness. We need to always brand ourselves to be the trusted platform. We're always transparent. Like we won't cheat you. Um, It's if it's there, it's not sold. If it's not there, you have your money. Like it's not, you will never lose anything. Right. Um, And on top of that, the sustainable aspect to it, because at our core, like secondhand fashion is sustainable. Like there's nothing more sustainable than actually wearing something like a hand-me-down from your mom, for example, right? Because you don't you don't buy anything new. You don't buy anything that's recently produced. It, you know, it's like, yeah, basically it's the state. So that's what I'm trying to um, get people to know more about HunchTree, like in terms of the branding aspect. Mm-hmm. In terms of the tech aspect, I think I want to grow um, – I want to eventually have a mobile app. Mm. I think that would be great. Mm. Um, also, working on the seller dashboard. <clears throat> um, allowing them to see like how much they've sold, how like how long more till they get to like the next tier. Uh, making it more seamless in terms of like, you know, changing the prices. Like it's like automatic, for example. I do want to, I mean, we kind of talked about this briefly before we started the podcast. I do want to eventually build a system where, um, you know, they can, you know, recognize the pictures uploaded by the person um, to suggest the price, suggested uh, style. I mean, there's like so many things that uh, we wish to, um, to work on, but I think one step at a time.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that's the exciting thing about running and yeah. growing a business is there's always new things to do and new things to learn and new directions to take the company to, which is um, so exciting. Uh, your partner, I know that you mentioned that you guys were friends before um, and I know that the co-founder relationship really is so crucial in um, uh, a startup, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah. How did you find, how did you find her? Has it affected your friendship? Because I know a lot of times they're like, don't get into business with someone that you're friends with. Um, would love to just hear your your thoughts.
1: Um, so we were family friends. So I'm actually friends with our older brother. Mm-hmm. So our family has known each other for a very long time. And then uh, so we go to the same church. I mean, basically, we're like, we we've known of each other, but we were never that close before. It was kind of like Oh, hi, bye, we would go to events together, like maybe go for, you know, sometimes lunch together, but we definitely got a lot closer after working together. Um, Yeah, it's, it's really a blessing. Honestly, it's like, it's almost like fate, like partners are very, very hard to find. Um, So... Just really have to pray for a good one,
0: <laughs> and that's amazing, right? That, like you guys managed to go through all of this and and build this together. Um, where are there certain things that now, looking back, you would advise other people to look out for in a co-founder?
1: Um, I think the first thing to look out for is you need to find a co-founder who's so different from you. <clears throat> Don't find someone who's similar to you at all. Like, me and my partner are so different. Like she refuses to be on in any magazine. She refuses to do any interviews. Like before she was like I don't want to do press conferences. I do not like to talk. And I don't like numbers. So I I'm, I'm the marketing person. I mean, I don't I don't, you know, love to calculate numbers, but she loves that. Um, you know, she doesn't really care about branding. She doesn't care about concepts. She doesn't I mean, to a certain extent, she cares about curation, but not so much. Um. So she loves, yeah, she loves very different things than I do, and I think that's what works. Um. So we don't really get in the way of each other.
0: So very complementary type of skill mm-hmm. sets. You guys bring different perspectives and different strengths. Um. Yeah. To to the table. Um. And I think that's so interesting, right? Because sometimes it's hard. To find someone who shares the same passion or the same interest as you, but is so different so from different. you as well, right? And I think that yeah. that's kind of the fine balance, uh, and why it's so hard to find a good co-founder is it's hard to find someone who's passionate about the same topic as you, um, but offer very complementary skill sets to you. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit to talk about um, motherhood and work. So I know that you have a kid, a kid, um, and so I know for a lot of our listeners here, um, one of the big questions that we as women have is how do we balance, you know, work with our careers? Um, and so I wanted to ask you, how do you do it?
1: I think um, you need a really good team. You need to learn to delegate. You cannot micromanage, and you just need better time management.
0: Mm-hmm. and do you feel like that kind of came naturally to you or was it quite or are you someone who is like you know very in the weeds of things and it was kind of difficult for you to learn to, to delegate
1: no uh I feel like I do delegate um but I think the time management is still it's still a struggle I do try to manage my time better um, until today, my son still asked me like, oh, why do you have to work? Like, can you just stay at home? Can you just work when I'm in school? But he goes to school at like eight. Like my office is not open at eight. It opens at 10. <laughs> By the time he's out of school.
0: <laughs> That's like when work is the busiest. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um,
1: so like I do bring him to the office sometimes. Like, for example, when he has holidays, like... You know so other children might be in the playground like he's in the office like he plays he plays with my team members or he you know finds something to do Mm -hmm. like eat a snack in there and you know i don't know talk to the bags i don't know but basically (laughs) like (laughs) i do think there is value in having your children see you work Mm -hmm. so i i told him like no i'm not gonna stop working you know Mm -hmm. like why is it that i have to stop working and you don't ask daddy to stop working, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, exactly. And it, it's so true, right? And I think a lot of that happens because women haven't quite figured out um, how to balance all of this, right? And I think there's almost some societal expectation that it would be the woman who has to give up her career rather than the man who has yeah. to give up his career uh, for, for the family, yeah. Um And did you yourself face any of that sort of expectation beyond just, you know, your kid? Did you face any sort of kind of that sort of pressure, whether it was deliberate pressure or just kind of internalized pressure?
1: Yeah, I think for sure, like especially being Asian and coming from this part of the world, they, they don't really expect you to work or more like they expect you to be a good housewife and a good mom to your children and, you know, have more children do you only have one. Um, why are you going to the office? You know, you should be with your husband. And um, honestly, I think I, I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, also there are other... Ch- like I'm fortunate enough that like my group of friends are all very supportive mm-hmm. they are all working moms also um so it's it's very supportive that way right and they say like dude who cares like why do you listen to them it's so much noise like like why what are you gonna do at home you're gonna be so bored you're gonna drive <laughs> yourself crazy And you know what I like honestly when when I have nothing to do like I'm on holiday for too long for example like you do drive yourself crazy <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> I'm the same. But I I can't speak for everybody. <laughs> um, I like cannot be. I can't sit still. So I I totally hear, totally hear where you're coming from. Uh, but I I yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. Right. I think it's surrounding yourself with the right support system, the right network, uh, or the right community of women. Yeah. Right. Who are very supportive of of this. And um, I think uh, it is you know tough when society does have a lot of these kind of pressures on like, you know, women should stay, um, you know, should, should kind of put their career secondary, right? Not, not stay at home, but like, you know, a lot of the times when women give birth or when women have kids, uh, they're expected to have their career take a back seat. Um, And uh, I think that's definitely something that a lot of women face or or struggle with um, today. Um, and so I think one way you suggested, which I think is is great, is just surrounding yourself with other like minded people who will support you in in your decision and uh, your choice. But I think choice. also
1: it is easier for me because um, because I have my own company versus if mm-hmm. I was to have a corporate job, it might be more difficult for me to have a career and have you know a family and be very involved in both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the timing is not dictated by me, it's dictated by my boss. So I think Mm. that's the difference.
0: Mm. And I think that's very interesting. Um, Maybe share a little bit more about about that, actually. How do you feel like having a company gives you that sort of flexibility with with balancing family and and work?
1: I mean, it's amazing. I can't complain. I love my company. Um, But I think also, um, for example, like I would know, right? Like, oh, for Singapore, like, Christmas is a big thing. Chinese New Year is a big thing. For Indonesia, like Hari Raya is a big thing. I know the dates already, So basically, we would make, let's say, prop- like, like campaigns or proposals to work with, you know, whoever at dates where I know that I wouldn't have to, you know, deal with my son having a term break or like, mm-hmm. like my husband's like year and, you know, leave, right? Mm-hmm. So you can just kind of schedule it yourself because you are in control. Mm-hmm. Um... So that's like one thing that we do. And then for example, like, oh, I know, for example, today, like my son has, you know, Chinese lesson from this time to this time, like I'll just do my meetings on this time.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: things like that, right? So, cause I, I know that he's not around anyways, but for example, if he's off, then, you know, I try not to have my meetings on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, I think like time management, like moving yeah. things around, it's more flexible.
0: Like being in control of your schedule and being able I to so, partition yeah. things um, and align them with when you need to be focused on work and when you need to be uh, more focused on home.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um,
0: um, So one last question for you, which I ask all of my guests, right? Um, You know, in the Western world, it's very much um, believed that or a lot of people say that, you know, follow your dreams and, you know, the money will come. Whereas in Asia, it's very much of the view that uh, you know you should go find a very stable corporate job, um, and it's very much focused on like financial stability here in in Asia, and you kind of put your passions aside. Um, so, I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on on this statement.
1: Um, I do very much believe and follow your dreams. Um, I'm also very lucky in the sense that, um. I mean, it is a stable business. So I I can afford to follow my dreams. Uh, My partner has made it a very stable, like, you know, like financially a stable business so that I can think of what to do next. But I do think like it's very important to follow your dreams because if you are not dreaming, if you are not excited, if you're not dreaming, you're not excited, right? And if you're not excited, there's no way you can create um. great product and i think like Mm -hmm. excitement is so contagious if you're excited people around you are excited you know and if you're not dreaming big for whatever that you're doing how is that going to be attractive to other people if you're not even attracted to it so i (laughs) i I do very much believe you need to follow your dreams Mm -hmm. and also like how like you work your whole day like, can you imagine doing something you don't like? Like, no matter how much money you make, like how That's miserable would so you be? Like, yeah. I would rather earn less. Well, maybe not zero, but maybe like instead of this, like, you know, less, but be very happy in what I do.
0: Definitely. And actually, this was a question I probably should have asked you earlier um, because it's very clear your interest in and passion in, in fashion, right? Did you ever consider studying fashion in those in like when you were younger?
1: Uh no, but I considered studying fashion a few years ago. I feel like I need to, uh not a few years actually, like last year. So we do have a lot of interns um here in Singapore. Uh a lot of the schools here actually require internship uh from the students from like LaSalle, from you know, all these um, is it NAFA? NAFA, right? Um yeah. uh, and so like I meet all of the interns and I thought, I should have studied fashion this is so interesting because they would talk about their projects and mm-hmm. even you know when they applied their resume would have like portfolios so I did think about it um mm-hmm. I don't have the time I think that's definitely like um not like top <laughs> top priority right now but I would love to honestly
0: that'd be so that'd be super cool yeah um um, yeah, I think, I think a lifelong learner, right? It's never too late to to go back and, and, yeah. and study. I did take something. some courses though,
1: during COVID um, yeah. on Coursera. Uh, it's, it's different.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so just to wrap up with one last question, which is any advice for people who are thinking about starting their own company that you wish you knew before you embarked on this journey?
1: I mean, it's not as easy as you think, but I think it's worth it. Um. There will be like, you know, the first, you definitely need to have um, enough savings to start something. I mean, unless you are looking to fundraise right away, which then you can draw a salary. Uh, But if you have a family, like you need like a good amount of saving to start your own company, if you're not planning to get fundraised.
0: Actually, that's a great, um, that's a great point. And I wanted to ask you for people who are thinking about starting a business of this sort, let's say, um, how much money would you recommend they set aside?
1: Um, When I start, like we only put in like 100K or something, something so small um, to start a whole team in Jakarta, but that's also Indonesia. So maybe less, Mm. less capital there um so I think it's doable um to start off you know relatively small I wouldn't say like and and we never had to put in any more money mm-hmm. out of that 100k until today mm-hmm. um we would just use you know like whatever we earn to just put it back um and I and think was that
0: mostly for hiring staff or
1: uh it was just yeah it was operation like uh utilities rent, staff Mm. internet like uh buying laptops you know things like that Mm. um yeah I think it's just like the day-to-day like like producing paper bags boxes Mm. you know like everything costs money right
0: yeah
1: yeah um security tags warehousing Mm. (laughs) um so yeah I do yeah have a stable like savings account mm-hmm. um and also like ask yourself like three four or five times like is this really what you is it really what the market needs mm-hmm. um so I think it I do believe like it it will be a good business if you yourself need it because if you need it yourself you probably know better like how to make a product mm-hmm that everyone needs. But if you don't need it yourself or you're not a a user yourself and need this service or product, then I, I say like you no. Know.
0: Yeah. And I, I completely agree with that because sometimes it's hard to build a product for a customer that you don't even really No, and it requires so much research to really understand what that customer needs and it's so much easier when it's a product that you yourself need (laughs) at Um, least at least at the end of the day someone is getting some use out of it which is yeah
1: (laughs) so like every time we want to launch a new feature on the website um my partner always say like I said, okay, like, how do you want to do it, right? And she said, okay, so basically you're your own customer, just figure it out. And it, and it's a lot easier, right? Because if you're your own customer, you're like, okay, well, I want this. I want fa- faster earnings. I want this, you know, UI sucks. I can't see, you know, like that's easier.
0: Interesting, yeah. And I guess one last question, um, which is how do you balance that with the business with what the business needs, right? Because sometimes you'd be like, as a consigner, I want to get more money paid out to me, yeah. uh, whereas that may not really make sense from a business perspective. So, in situations like that, how would you you guys kind of balance that?
1: Um. So we know that the like the seller would want like in this specific case like they want the most, and um, the obviously the uh, the buyers want to pay the least amount of money for the same thing um so we do try to benchmark it with whatever is available in the market and if it is too high we usually say like no I'm so sorry you can't take it right mm-hmm. um our our commission is also very fair so if let's say it is a really nice item so we do suggest like Oh, so like I understand, like you want like you know ten thousand dollars for like your Chanel classic flat bag, but this is so used, um, and we can't sell it for this much. But you can list it yourself, for example, mm-hmm. and you can earn a little bit more. So we take like let's say only five hundred dollars mm-hmm. instead of a thousand dollars, and they earn a little bit more. Like meet halfway. I think it's always about like give and take. Um, when we can give, we always try to give, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be like. You know preferred rates um uh, through like different various uh products that we have mm, better like customer service you know it's always room for for uh improvement
0: amazing all right um well Thank you so much, Sabrina. This has been so good chatting with you about this and seeing uh, your journey with building Hunt Street. Um, And uh, we wish you all the best in the next stage for you guys. Thank
1: you. And thanks for supporting always. Of Of course.
0: And there you have it. My conversation with Sabrina. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from today's conversation. Number one, an important part of building a business is building the brand, especially when it comes to secondhand luxury. Trust and branding is critical in avoiding counterfeits. This is why Hunt Street invested in PR and marketing hires early on in their journey. There's also a lot of power in the founder's personal brand. Having a face or a person be tied to the brand can really help to build that trust and make it a bit more personal. Number two, Sabrina's secret sauce to growth is a lot of trial and error. For a successful platform to grow, focusing on customer service, curation, and the app interface really helped a lot. She hired from the hospitality industry to work on customer service, looked at building relationships when curating items, and implemented feedback from customers on the app interface. Number three, The best way to analyze your business is to be your own customer. This way, you really understand the needs of your customer and can really understand if their needs are met when going through the customer journey. And lastly, look for a co-founder that is very different from you. This way, you'll have more complementary skill sets and can split the roles evenly. Sabrina was much more on the marketing side and very open to sharing her story and being the face of the brand, while her partner was much more in the accounting operations side of the business. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in a couple of weeks' time for my conversation with Jeremy Au, who currently works at the VC Monks Hill Ventures and runs a successful podcast called Brave. But he actually has a really fascinating career story and actually started out as a management consultant at Bain before founding numerous companies and eventually pivoting into VC. There's a ton of great VC advice in this episode, so make sure you're subscribed to my podcast so you don't miss it. And if you like today's episode, I'd so appreciate it if you can leave me a rating or review wherever you get your podcast and share this podcast with a friend who maybe isn't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in a couple weeks.